as it approaches the subject of education has a radically different purpose than does Christianity. I think we can best understand humanism by going to the first humanist manifesto. Now, the first humanist manifesto that most people are familiar with is the one that was issued in the 1930s. But actually, the original humanist manifesto goes back to the Garden of Eden. The tempter said, Ye shall be as God, every man his own God, knowing, that is, determining for yourself what constitutes good and evil. This is the first and great humanist manifesto. It is at the root of all sin and of all humanism, because humanism is that religion which logically develops the implications of the fall into a religion. This is why it is so dangerous to turn our children over to humanists to be educated, and why it is a sin. Now. When the child is brought up in terms of humanistic teaching, the curriculum is, to use the word, words of the progressive educators, child-centered, the child-centered curriculum. Shelves full of books have been written in this century on that subject, the child-centered curriculum. The whole purpose of the child-centered curriculum is to enable the child to see his centrality in life. The world is to revolve around the individual. The child must learn to realize himself. Now, at once, we have a conflict, of course, with our faith, because instead of self-realization, what our faith says as it comes to the child whether in the home or the church or in the Christian school. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Not self-realization, but the fulfillment of God's requirements of us. The glory of his kingdom, this is our purpose. Now, ideas do have consequences. If we believe something, we're going to act on it. Some years ago, one very astute psychologist observed that we are today a product of what we were thinking about intensely for the past six months. So we had better guard our thoughts. Very astute observation. Now, if a child is brought up to see himself as the center of things, it has ugly consequences. Humanism speaks of the innocence of the child. Our faith speaks of the child as a sinner. 
a world of difference between the two. I don't know how many of you are familiar with uh, a pastor here in the South, Dr. Robert Mount. Anyone here? Yes, one person. Well, Bob Mount is an old friend and something of a son of mine in the faith, even though he is a Baptist. Bob is a marvelous person and a delightful sense of humor, and I uh, recall with delight the fact that he once mentioned that when his son was born, he welcomed that son with such joy and looked at him asleep in his mother's arms and said, that child is such an angel, a bundle of innocence, and he named the child John Calvin Mounts. Two years later, he remarked one day in the course of a sermon on sin that when he looked at his child first, he thought he was an angel and named him John Calvin, and now he realized that perhaps he should have called him Satan Beelzebub. Well, what Bob was there humorously calling attention to with his characteristic wit was the fact that we all recognize We are born sinners, and the loveliness and joy of a child should not conceal from us the fact that the child is a sinner. We're all fallen creatures until Christ redeem us from our sins. Now to educate a child into an egoism with regard to his sin has devastating consequences with regard to our society. Some years ago, Reisman and others, in a study of the American character, this goes back to the beginning of the 50s, called attention to what had happened. And anyone who read that book at that time would have had no difficulty in predicting what happened in the 60s and the 70s. What happened with the hippie movement? What happened in our schools? What happened with the sexual revolution? And with more. Because what he said in that study was that because we are products, I'm putting it in my terminology, of a child-centered society and child centered education, we have become consumer-oriented. The term is his. Each person sees himself as a consumer and the world there to provide him with what he wants. So it's a give-me, give-me attitude. Or do your own thing because life owes you everything and you need to realize yourself. As a result, Reisman and his team of sociologists said, our culture is moving from a Puritan work ethic to a consumer ethic, from producing to consuming, from work to an emphasis on play. And what has happened and it's happened all over the world, is that productivity for man-hours has decreased. The decrease would have been much more dramatic 
if to an extent technology had not increased our producing capability. But now even our technological development is reaching a stalemate because of a variety of problems, one of which I touched on in the previous session. So that our consumer-oriented society, a product of child-centered education, is rapidly approaching a crisis. It cannot cope with the crisis that faces us because a child-centered culture reacts to problems with tantrums, not with responsibility. I think you begin to see the difference between a Christian school and a state school. Because even if that Christian school be, as some are, only a public school with a little Bible added to it, and I'm sorry, but there are some that are like that, they have not yet made their entire curriculum systematically Christian. But even if they have not, because of that Christian emphasis, instead of being child-centered, they are rather God-centered, work-oriented. And the results are dramatically different. There is a different character and a different discipline. I have seen case after case where people have been horrified at what happens when the child starts going to school. Just the other day, a woman told me about going shopping with a friend, and they went in the friend's car, and the friend dropped her off. And the mother turned to the kindergarten boy in the back seat and said, Say goodbye to Mrs. W. And the boy, a kindergartner, looked up solemnly and said, Goodbye, dummy. And that's not uncommon. But I know one father whose wife insisted on a Christian school for their child who told me with tears how wrong he had been and dragging me seals about it. He said, I realized there was a difference. When I asked my son a question, he turned to me and said, Sir, and I suddenly realized the difference between my boy and others a courtesy, a respect for me that other fathers were not getting. Why? Because Christian education has a different center and it has authority. Not the authority of the autonomous individual, but the authority of God the Lord and his word. 
This is why the Christian schools have an unquestionable triumph ahead of them if they are not destroyed. I mentioned in the last hour that the humanists are aware of the superiority of the Christian schools. In some of the earlier trials, the state would order the testing of the children, determined to prove that these children had to be inferior. Now what happens, let me say, is that most of these trials are of new schools that have only been open a year or two, schools that are part of a very small church of 30 or 40 members and maybe have 10, 18 pupils, and they meet in the church basement. And they figure, aha, here we can make a case against them and establish a legal precedent, and then we can go down the road and hit these other churches and their schools with it. And so what they would do would be to come around with a sheriff and arrest the minister and take him to jail, literally. Put him on trial. Order that all the children be tested. And the results uniformly show that these children were a minimum of two years ahead of the public school pupils. They couldn't believe it. In one trial, they were so convinced that the testing had to be an error that they ordered a second test. The children came out even better. They ordered a third test. And the children did even better. Then they tried in the court to go back and report only the first test. But the defense attorney compelled that they report the third test. Now, most of the time, the state attorney blocks any attempt by the judge to order a test. They know that they lose out on the results. In one instance, it was a state board of education psychologist who was ordered to do the testing. The results were not as good as in most cases. It was a very new school. There was no question in the state psychologist's mind of what was being done in that school, even though they were very new and just barely underway. The state moved to bar his testimony. One of their own men. Now, to me, the most shocking fact in this picture is not what these humanists are doing, that I can expect. It is that Christian people, parents and church members, drag their heels at the idea of starting a Christian school or oppose it. I can understand the opposition of these people because they see the handwriting on the wall. They recognize that if these Christian schools continue to grow at the rate they are growing today, several new ones every day. By the end of this century, there will be virtually no public schools. Every child in this country will be in a Christian school and will believe the Bible from cover to cover. It will give us a different country, will it not?
the state educators know what they are facing. Moreover, they fully recognize that their products cannot compete with ours. Their writings really are bordering on the hysterical and the totalitarian. One professor of education has proposed in the past few years that re-educational camps be set up for the likes of us. And he said these will not be concentration camps because what we represent is the truth. We are in a very serious battle. As Christians, we have the greatest tool for the reconquest of this country for Jesus Christ in the Christian school, and we dare not neglect it. We need to fight for the freedom of the Christian school and the church from all state control and interference. The very controls by the state that have made the state schools so incompetent, they want to foist on us. On one occasion, I had a long and bitter argument with a state educator. And finally, he conceded in a moment of bitterness. It had become a shouting match, I'm afraid to say, between us. And he said, well, if it weren't for all the requirements and things that the state regularly imposes upon us, we could do a better job, too. And I said, well, the state pays and therefore it imposes the requirements. The Christian school gets the requirements from the people who pay. Now, who knows best with regard to children? The state or the parents? Do you know that the universal Compulsory education laws are very much a fraud. We are told that those laws were what brought about universal education. Every child was in school before they ever passed those laws. There are two or three states, I believe Virginia is one of them, that found out not too long ago they don't have such a law. What puts a child in school? It's the love of the parents. Moreover, the Coleman report a few years back was ordered, I believe, under President Kennedy when he first went into office. And the Coleman report was designed to deal with segregation and education. And they used what was then new, the computer, to tell them what the situation was. They fed data from all the public schools across the country into the computers. The results were rather Disturbing. It's one reason why you have not heard more of the Coleman report. Came out under Coleman's name and he didn't like the results either and has virtually spent much of his time since trying to disown 
what he then produced. They found there was no correlation between the money spent in a state and the results. They found there was no correlation between integration and results. No correlation between segregation and results. No correlation between race and educational achievement. They found only one correlation between the home and results. They found that if the home were a strong and stable home, no matter how poor the school, the child somehow survived and did well. He could have done better in a better school, but he did all right. But if the home were unstable, then the child did poorly and was in trouble educationally and legally. They found that something like 15 or 20 percent of the white children came from such bad homes and about 30 to 35 percent of the black children, and that was the problem. The home. Now, this should tell us something. The good home was a product of a good faith, of biblical teaching. Incidentally, the Harvard report on the Coleman report, a report about a report, said that the only schools that have ever worked in ghetto areas are Christian or parochial schools. No public school, no state schools ever worked in a ghetto area. Why? Because they provide a faith which can change those pupils. And the church provides a faith for the parents. So that the key to educational achievement begins with faith, continues in a Christian school through the implementation of the Christian family. It takes the Christian faith, the church, working with a Christian family through a Christian school, and the results are without equal. Here we have the key. Now, you know, since I was a teenager, I've followed great deal of what's gone on in politics and attempts by various people to turn the direction of this country around and restore America to what it once was. It has gone astray. Badly. I believe it was just two weeks ago I was in the Midwest in what was once the backbone of this country. It was settled in the 1830s by Yankees from New England, all of whom were churchgoers. Then it saw immigrations later on in the century of Germans and Hollanders. It's a white man's country. Rich farms, fine small towns and cities, and I was in this city of 5,000. The church where I was at was the only Bible-believing church left. 
except for two very small holiness groups. They had a fine Christian school. All the other churches were modernist to the nth degree and only a handful of the old people attending. And the community was so lawless. And these men at this church were facing court because the state was going to move in on their Christian school and I was there to prepare them. They reported that child molesters from that community were driving right onto the Christian and public school grounds to try to seize girls regularly. And on one occasion, not too long before, they caught such a man and the girls testified and the DA insisted that it be made merely a trespassing charge and then he was turned loose. In the second case, they chased the man and caught him, and they were threatened because they were violating the man's rights. They chased him with their cars and forced him off the road in order to capture him, and they were violating his rights. And so the men were saying, what are we going to do for to protect our wives and our daughters. There were no ghettos in that area. But there was no faith. And this is the key. Now, God has given us a very simple way. This is the victory which overcometh the world, even our faith. Christian church, a Christian family, a Christian school. There is the weapon. The enemy recognizes its power. It's time we did also. Thank you. Yes. No, I have not been involved in South Carolina. I was involved in the trial in North Carolina where there were 62 churches and schools on trial. And that trial was lost. However, those 62, and the state actually went to court to prevent a stay of execution which would have enabled the Christian schools to continue until the case went to the Supreme Court, which could have been two to four years' time. And they were going to jail every one of those 62 pastors. However, that created such a ruckus up and down the state, and the Christian schools hired one pastor and told him, please, resign from your church and spend full time going up and down the state to alert the churches. And so the state backed off and they passed a law giving freedom to the Christian schools. Now, however, there 
facing another threat, that of forcing ERA onto the churches, equal representation in the pulpit. And that pastor, Dan Carr, is very active in that battle. Yes. Yes, the question has reference to an illustration I cited yesterday of a a seminary student in Texas who sent his wife to the bank to borrow $800, a short-term loan, because they needed the money. He was going to seminary, and he was also working. She went with her two children, I believe ages one and four. She was sitting across the desk from the loan officer, and the four-year-old was reaching and grabbing things on the desk, and she warned him, said, you do that once more, and I'll slap your hand. He reached again, and she reached out and slapped his hand like that. Two persons in the bank immediately reported her to the welfare authorities for child abuse. And she was arrested before she got to her car, and the child was taken from her. Now, the question was, would I advise Christian parents not to spank their children in public? That's a good question. It is becoming dangerous to do so. Welfare people are extremely ready to take such cases. We must remember that we as Christians are the number one enemy of these humanists. As a result, we have to make sure we've trained our children so well that a word is enough in a public place and that they will behave because there are too many cases all over the country of these people being on the watch for anyone who slaps a child to report it and they are all too ready to move in. The Loosedale, Mississippi case, of course, is an example of what they're ready to do. How many of you are familiar with that? Oh, well, in that case, uh, this church in Mississippi has also a home for uh, problem children. And not too long ago, they had a 15-year-old boy who is six foot in height, weighs 180, placed there by his parents. Now, there's no lock or key or gates or bars or anything. This boy was very unruly, and uh, he didn't like the discipline, and he didn't like being disciplined, so he ran off and claimed he had been beaten. So they moved in the sheriff's pen during a Sunday morning worship and arrested the pastor and the assistant pastor, confiscated the church records. When a visiting missionary went back into the sanctuary to pick up his Bible, they arrested him also. They took all the children from the home down to the county 
courthouse and stripped every last one of them to examine them for bruises. Providentially, there was a good judge there who not only dismissed the case but apologized two or three times to the pastors for what had happened. But that kind of thing is only unusual. That case is only unusual because of what the judge did. Now, I'm not surprised that you did not hear about this case because this kind of thing is going on all the time and it is not reported. Yes. Could you repeat that question for me? I'm not sure I got it off. You didn't hear your question. Uh, would you stand up and repeat it again, please? Yes, we need Christians in public office. We are the most poorly represented of any group in the country. The humanists, the socialists are all well represented, but the Christians, who are the majority in this country, have almost no representation. We need to elect godly judges. And our Lord says, by their fruit shall ye know them, so a mere profession of being born again is not enough. Now, it is important, therefore, for us to organize politically. We've had a crisis, I referred to it yesterday, in California, where we have 61 or more churches that are going to be sold by the state for non-payment of taxes because the state taxed them and they refused to pay because they took a stand against homosexual rights. And the state said, you're political now, therefore you're no longer a church. Now, I think we're going to turn that situation around by legislation. Just by getting Christians organized, we have organized a group, among others, uh, Californians for Biblical Morality. We have now about 700 ministers in the group. And every one of them work on their congregations. And some of them tell them, you come to church Sunday morning with pencil and paper. We're going to write a letter to Assemblyman so-and-so or a Senator so-and-so about such-and-such a bill which would destroy what we as Christians believe in. One church got 5,000 letters 
into the Attorney General's office on one issue, and if you think the Attorney General wasn't floored, you're very, very wrong. He was very upset. We hope in two years' time, it was just organized last October, to have a million Christians in the state of California ready to stand up and let the legislature know where we stand. And if you think the legislators are not a little queasy already, uh, you're uh, very wrong, because they are afraid of organized groups. And we need to organize to let them know what we think and to elect our own people. Yes. Yes, various uh, state groups are now regularly in communication. Uh, state groups of teachers, especially the Christian schools, were first on, on the firing line. So, for example, the Alabama uh, Christian School Association, the Ohio Christian School Association, the New England Christian School Association, and a number of others are regularly in communication. And uh, I can usually expect a call from one or another of them during the course of a week as uh, these and other like groups uh, take counsel together on one or another issue. We have two or three very fine groups in Washington now that represent the Christian cause. This is how we were able to put handcuffs on the IRS for a year with regard to Christian schools. We hope to renew it as of this June. And we were able to do it because we got a flood of letters into congressmen and senators. They didn't want to do it that they were afraid of the voters. So uh, things are beginning to take place here. We must never forget that we have a duty to stand up and fight against these humanists, to defend the freedom of Christ's church. Yes. The number of uh, communications media people who are interested is increasing. We do have one or two groups, most notably Pat Robertson and the 700 Club. Now, uh, his position theologically is different from ours, but he has been very ready to have uh, very differing theological perspectives on his program. I've been on it three times to deal with these church and Christian school issues. He has a worldwide audience of <coughs> uh, 40 million. So when he comes out on an issue, it uh, helps. Now, sometime before the end of next month, uh, I shall be on a number of radio stations across the country five minutes a week to give a report on these cases. This will be carried freely by these radio stations. Uh, 
um, the cost will be syndication, which will cost us 800 to 1,000 a month to tape and mail these and take care of uh, the syndication costs. But these stations will carry it as a public service. And we find many of the radio stations are very ready to cooperate here. Yes. Yes. The attitude of the IRS and of the various states is that tax exemption is a subsidy from the state. That's a new doctrine. Tax exemption was what the early church fought for in relationship to Rome. Rome was ready at all times to say to the church, just apply and we'll make you a legal religion on the condition that you recognize the right of the state to control religion. And you say one thing as you get it. Caesar is Lord. Well, the church made its baptismal confession, Jesus Christ is Lord. It fought at all times on the issue that because Jesus Christ is Lord over Caesar, not Caesar over Christ, Caesar could never tax that which belongs to Jesus Christ, his church and school. Rome went to all lengths to try to persuade the Christians to become legal. The attitude of the church was any church that accepted a legal status was not a church and they wouldn't recognize it as such. And that was what the first great split in the church was at when the persecutions ended. Those who refused to allow the compromising churches back into fellowship and those who said we can and must forgive them and receive them. Rome went so far, well, one emperor had a statue made of Jesus and put into his private chapel and let it be known that he prayed to Jesus every so often. And so the rulers, the governors, and uh, consuls would say to the Christians, look, our emperor has a high regard for your Jesus. He's ready to recognize him as a god and to pray to him. Now, what's your fuss about? Why don't you submit and be licensed as a legal religion? And they refused. Now, that's how the Christian church got its tax exemption, by refusing to allow the state to have any control over anything that belongs to Jesus Christ. This is why we have the word sanctuary for the place of worship. Because once you set foot on the church grounds, you had a sanctuary from the state. It could not come on to the church's property. It was like an embassy. And that's why Paul says we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We have extraterritorial rights. It's foreign ground here. It's a part of heaven. You're on earth. 
And this is why, because they were able to communicate that idea when Thomas a Becket was killed in the sanctuary by Henry's men. The whole of Europe reacted with horror. Whatever his quarrel with Thomas a Becket may have been, to enter into the sanctuary of God and there to kill a man was a fearful offense because it is a sanctuary. It does not belong to the state. The state cannot come on the grounds of the church without changing its position and coming as a petitioner, a worshiper, never as a lord over Christ. Now, the extent to which the church sometimes carried this can be illustrated. Uh, we had, in the 60s and early 70s, the long hair to craze on the part of the hippies, their hair halfway down their shoulders. Well, that was a part of the barbarian style in Europe. The German tribes, the Frankish tribes, all the various peoples of Europe originally had that style. And uh, the church in the early days, and for some centuries, any time anybody came around, no matter whether he was a feudal lord or one of the king's men, the pastor would stop the services and order some of the deacons to wrestle the man to the ground, and they would shear him right then and there. And they said, you come into the Lord's house on the Lord's terms. And this is what scripture says about long hair and a man. Now, that's how they regarded the immunity of the church and anything that belonged to the church from the state. Yes, was there? That's a very good question. What protection is there from for an independent Christian school which is not associated with the church? I believe that in terms of scripture, it is still to be classified as a church. It is a Levitical function. A Levitical function. So that an independent Christian school must be seen as something that is covered under the term church. And this has always been the position of Christendom. Now, what the IRS today is trying to do is to separate even the church's school from the church. In several cases, for example, where the church and school are one building, it uses the term, and this is a good term, please put this in your mind, to avoid this term, because it's a term that's been promoted by these IRS men, church-related school, you see. It's related, but it isn't the church. No, we must say, the church is a Levitical institution. Its ministry is 
and especially in the Protestant tradition, one of instruction. And it's one man in New England told the state authorities when they were threatening him with jail, he said, look, I see no difference between teaching from the pulpit and teaching in Sunday school and teaching Monday through Friday. It's all a part of our ministry. And if all I had was Monday through Friday instruction, it'd still be a ministry. What they are trying to do, and we have seen this in one legal opinion that has been given, is to separate not only the Christian school from the church, but the Sunday school and the sermon, and say, that's educational. Now, what does that leave to the church in the First Amendment? Why, only if you have a liturgy, you see, in Greek or in Latin, and now the Catholics have abandoned even that, is it immune in terms of the First Amendment. But for us, it is all one ministry instruction. Yes. Yes. First of all, the more control you have in religion, the more corruption you have. Uh, Jim Jones and the People's Church was virtually a state church. It was totally political, controlled by politicians, working with politicians, getting state and federal funds and the like. Now, if you're going to control the Moonies, you will end up by controlling every American. Because to prevent what the Moonies are doing, and I don't like what they're doing, you would have to pass laws that would take every church's freedom away and every religion. Now, freedom will involve abuses. But if we're going to abolish, abolish abuses in government the same way, or in civil government, we'd have to abolish state and federal government. After all, where is there the most corruption in our society? Is it not in state and federal agencies? They are the more, most corrupt. I heard one businessman in California say, I would rather deal with the mafia than the federal government. And he said that after having had two years when the federal government was determined to get him because he was independent. And they moved IRS men into a room in his place just to sit there month after month after month to look for something, to invent something in order to nail him. And he said all the mafia would demand would be 
a payoff every now and then is a license. But he said a license with the federal government isn't enough. Now, I know from men who are in the oil companies and in banks and so on that at every election both parties come around with a shakedown. This is how much we expect from you this year. And they either give or else. Because federal inspectors will come around and will find some excuse to make them pay several times as much. This is why most of the big corporations are so cowardly. By this means of payoff, they have step by step forsaken all sense of fight and freedom. Now, we can't expect any laws by a government that has gotten so big and so tyrannical to help improve the situation with regard to religion. It will only make it worse. Moreover, some years ago, Curtis, a legal expert, said, a law never means what it was intended to mean, but what the courts can make it to mean. So every time you pass a law, it is dangerous. I'd rather have the Moonies than the IRS. I can't hear you. Could you... How does the doctrinal philosophy of a Christian school affect the school? Well, very greatly, very greatly. One of the interesting things to me is that the Christian school is creating a revival of the Reformed faith. There's a very good reason for that. The minute you start teaching every subject, you're going to try, if you are at all thoughtful, to develop a Christian perspective there, a biblical perspective. Now, what theology provides the world of my view other than the Reformed faith? So there is a steady drift on the part of schools that began as militant Arminian schools into the Reformed faith, a receptivity to it, so that in hundreds upon hundreds of schools that started in the past ten years as ultra-Arminian schools, today they are very much closer to the Reformed faith. And from being no-point Calvinists, as someone said, they are anywhere from two-and-a-half to four-and-a-half-point Calvinists. So there's a development. It was last year that we received word from the U.S. Post Office concerning our bulk mailing permit. The church has a bulk mailing permit, and under that we were sending church mail and the school mail. And the information we got back was 
we want you to have the post office, you must have two permits. One for the church and one for your educational, for your school. And in our reply back and such, we said, we do not consider as an educational extension. Our Christian school is the church. And as a result, uh, we got the agreement from them that if on our church mail, if we would put the Shannon Forest Presbyterian Church return address on that, even though it was school mail, we could still operate that under one ball I'm not sure what all of their, but we were, and I wrote back and I said, we're not concerned about having to pay two bulk many permits, but our concern is we are a one unit church organization. They have just hit another church and school on the same thing. The Southern Pines uh, Church and School in Southern Pines, North Carolina. Uh, they're being denied their mailing permit on the grounds that they use it for both their church and school. So this is happening again and again, and they act as though uh, the previous uh, judgments made were of no account. They push each new group they find. 